0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'm Cassie McCullough. Thanks for joining me on Radio National Summer for this special series of Best of the Festivals from the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival. This morning, we have a session called Woke in Fright. Not just a clever wordplay on the classic Australian novel and film, this is a session that tackles the tricky area of what we can and can't say in public discourse. Here's festival director Michael Williams.
2: There are several certainties if you're an artistic director of a writers' festival in twenty. 20- 2021, 2022. Uh, And one of them is that you're gonna get asked what you're doing about cancel culture. Last year, we had a bit of a strop about it. I was like, I don't wanna talk about it. I don't think this is a useful framing device. I don't think it means anything. You know, as ubiquitous as it is uh, in our media commentary at the moment, I don't think it's a useful way to frame questions of discourse. 12 months on, we've given up on trying to pretend it's not a thing. It is a thing one way or the other, even if it's not a useful thing. So as with everything we program at Sydney Writers Festival, our aim is to dig a little deeper, to go beyond the kind of broad generalities, the unuseful buzzwords, and actually think about what this anxiety that seems to permeate so much of our discourse at the moment is pointing towards, where it comes from, what it means, what its relationship with power is. Uh, when we think about it. Um, Now, that said, having said we'd avoid the buzzwords, this session is called Woken Fright. That's because I can't resist a pun. So apologies that a pun comes before whatever high-minded ideals I might have. Uh, Bear with me, because I have a brief history lesson uh, just to kick us off. Uh, Australia had an obscure political leader at some undisclosed time in the past called Scott Morrison. (laughs) Um, And. It's an easy applause line today. I think that's going to happen a lot. Rebecca Solnit's doing the same thing, just in another session. Um, But when defending Catherine Deves, and we may come back to this particular thing uh, a bit, he said, I think Australians are getting pretty fed up with having to walk on eggshells every day because they may or may not say something one day that's going to upset someone. We are going to dig into the question of the things you can and can't say, whether that is a good thing, whether it is having a stifling effect on discourse uh, and what it means to be conscious of upsetting other people and trying to avoid it. And we have an extraordinary panel with which to do that this morning. Osman Faruqi Dunn, the far end, is the culture news editor at the City Morning Herald and The Age. Previously, he was the host of Schwartz Media's daily news podcast, 7am. He has worked as an editor at the ABC and was an award-winning reporter with the flagship audio documentary program, Background Briefing. Please make him very welcome. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist and senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and Age Newspapers. She's also worked on staff at The Guardian in London at the Australian Financial Review, as well as contributing to numerous other publications. In 2016, she won the Kennedy Award for Outstanding Columnist. In 2020, she won it again, and a Walkley for her coverage of sexual harassment allegations against former High Court Judge Dyson Hayden, along with Kate McClymont. Please make her very welcome. And Jack Lattimore is the Indigenous Affairs Journalist at The Age, previously Managing Editor of NITV Digital. He's a uh, celebrated black journalist and writer, uh, currently based on Boon Wurang country in Naam. Please make him very welcome. <clears throat> so a great panel, and I'm going to start broad and ask, I'll, I'll go down the far end to you first, Oz, and say, do you believe cancel
0: culture exists? And if so, is it in the room with us today? I mean, it certainly exists for Scott Morrison after yeah. last night. Um, I have um and over this thing, and, I, and I've changed my mind a lot, and kind of thinking about it for this panel, and a lot of people ask me, oh, you're speaking on this panel, what do you actually think about cancel culture? I think it does exist. I don't think it's particularly new. I think, I think the idea that people being criticised or called out or whatever kind of language or frame you want to put around it for things that they say the idea that that's a new phenomenon seems absurd i think i think why this debate has become as michael put it this thing that you kind of grapple with do you want to talk about it do you not want to talk about it i think the difference around it these days versus 20 30 40 50 years ago is the kinds of people who were deciding what was okay and then not okay to say were very limited it tended to be the people that ran newspapers and controlled how information got out, and they all tended to be older white men. And so they didn't mind saying it was okay to say this stuff and it was bad to say that stuff. When things got out of control from their perspective is when everyone else was allowed to set the terms of the debate. And you know, I think the rise of social media, the, that's played a role in kind of democratising who's allowed to provide critique and share information and say that you're not allowed to say the N-word anymore or you're not allowed to call, you know, talk, talk about marginalised groups in certain ways. That phenomenon of saying you can't say X or Y isn't new, but the people saying you can't say X and Y, that's what's changed. And I think a lot of the people who have traditionally set the terms of the debate are now running afoul of those rules. And so they might have previously been the people to say, we like controlling information. We like deciding who gets cancelled, who doesn't. But now we hate cancel culture because we're not the ones in charge. And I mean, like the Australian newspaper, which likes to pretend that it is the greatest enemy of cancel culture, has cancelled me like six times. You know? <laughs> they, they put tweets I made, I thought it was really funny. I tweeted once, um, sunscreen is proof white people don't belong in Australia. And they put that on the front page saying I should be fired from the ABC. So it's not like there's no... There's no kind of moral high ground, I think, from any particular side in this. They just like cancelling based on what they think the rules of debate should be. And they don't like the fact that people like me, people like Jackie and Jack, are allowed to say what is good and bad as well. There is so much in there that I think will
2: form the basis of our conversation today. But I want to stop on one brief point, which is that it's possible to utter the phrase the Australian have cancelled me half a dozen times and yet you are the senior culture <laughs> editor at yeah, yeah, nine yeah. newspapers. You know, often we hear this idea of I've been cancelled or this person's been cancelled and they continue to have a platform or they continue to have a... Cancellation doesn't seem to stick very well.
0: Well, thankfully you still let me go on panels despite it,
2: well, th- That's right. You were cancelled and yet here you are. <laughs> and I'm going to put this question to each of you at different points. Can you think of an example of someone who you think has been cancelled in any kind of meaningful, honest sense. I'm going to make that a question on notice because I think every time we dig into this, people perhaps lose their platform, people lose opportunities, but cancellation, mm. is it
3: a useful idea? Mm. We'll come back to that. Jacqueline? Oh. We had a high-profile example of a movie in a filmmaker that was cancelled at, the, I think it was the last Sydney Film Festival because of a sort of um, a debate over a de- particular depiction of... Korean or, I can't even remember, was it Korean or Japanese youth culture? So it was very, it was very um, obscure kind of debate, um, but that led essentially to the cancellation of that movie being shown and, and also to the humiliation of the filmmaker involved and I'm sh- I don't know her, but I'm sure it really rattled her confidence and had a very detrimental effect on her creative development. It's interesting that one of the things when we talk about cancel culture is it's now become a position of, the, of some people on the left who are always, you know, sort of as the, the, the perpetrators of cancel culture, it's become a bit of an orthodoxy that cancel culture doesn't exist and it's a thing that's been invented by you know, the Australian and sort of bogies of the Reich. But I think the minute you sort of say, you know, even saying that cancel culture is a thing has now become something of a dangerous position, kind of to me almost proves the existence of cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, however you want to characterize it. I totally agree with Osman in the sense that cancel culture is all about social media and the the, the populism of social media. So all of these people who previously didn't have a voice in public discourse have now got a voice and it's a huge voice because it's so diverse. And along with that power, all forms of power, and that is a form of power, have some fear attached to them because you look at power, power's hard to come up against, power's hard to challenge because you fear the consequences of it of challenging power, right? So in that sense, it's just another form of power. And of course, there's going to be some fear involved if you come up against it. Jack, Mm. (laughs) how do you feel about that, uh, that kind of
2: concept of the kind of direct link between questions of power and the loss of
4: power uh, and the kind of danger of cancellation? And Chris Graham said this a number of years ago, I live in a strange realm where you know, I concentrate on Aboriginal affairs. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the world that's just not in my channel. And um, that just doesn't even filter in. So through that prism, I view everything. And absolutely power is at the core of it. Cancel culture, social media, but also agency, I think. Panels like these are really difficult for me because social media, which is a driver of cancel culture as far as I'm concerned, has provided great opportunity for amplification and agency for Aboriginal people. Social media was the first opportunity to get what we were saying into the news into sort of mainstream media. For me, it's it's very much around the nature of what social media is. I left Facebook I think in around 2016. It was becoming really toxic. But Facebook is still the platform for where blackfellas go to connect and to, you know, put their point of view across and share and, you know, have all of that, um, you know, exchange. What I've seen in the last, I'd, I'd say, five years, probably a little bit longer, is Twitter's going in that same way. But it's still an important instrument, I think, to get that out. So. I absolutely think council culture exists, and I think it's such a fraught thing, and particularly when it comes down to a niche channel like I live in. But I don't want to, you know, take that agency away from or those instruments away from blackfellas that, you know, really struggle. And, and it wasn't so long ago; it was only five to maybe seven years ago that we only ever heard from three to four blackfellas in whether it was Australian or anything else. And that was Marshallington. Warren Mundine, Noel Pearson, and very few others. In that half decade, now we've got a proliferation of people that are engaging, their voices out there, we feel that we've got a sense of agency. So, yeah, I think, you know, council culture and opportunity for me are hand in hand. It's just difficult to split. I want to pick up on a thread in all three of your answers
2: there around that question of kind of policing Content. You know, Oz talked about it as a kind of shifting gatekeepers, and I think it's, it's there in, in the point Jack was just making. The term woke and wokeness, to me, carries connotations of performance. It carries connotations of uh, something you're doing because it's about... Uh, positioning, it's about currency, it, it's saying the thing that you expect is the orthodoxy and you, you, you think you'll get a good response to. It's hard not to think that you know, 25 years ago, if we'd been having this panel, and I suspect at Sydney Writers Festival they were having an equivalent of this panel 25 <laughs> years ago, they would have been talking about political correctness. And, you know, in the context of Howard and One Nation being formed as a party 25 years ago, all of the discourse was around political correctness. The idea that people were behaving in a particular way in the public sphere because they thought they had to, not because they thought it was right. What do you think about that idea of performance and perhaps in particular how it relates to people's presence on social media, Mm. having an unfiltered platform in a way that they've perhaps didn't in the past. Jacqueline?
3: I mean, I think we've, we all know what you're talking about and we've all seen it, right? And we all probably privately um, mock it and discuss it. Um, I know I certainly do in my more private social media sort of chat groups. Um, and it's pretentious and irritating when we see that wokeness performed. Um, I think probably all, all principles, um, all people of principle, or people who think they have principles, um, perform to an extent. Um, I think that's probably just a really basic tenet of human nature. It's just that now we have Instagram and all these platforms where people can do it so publicly. And we live in a narcissistic age where you know, um, it's very normal for people to emblazon photos of themselves you know, for the world, which is kind of weird, like if you haven't grown up in that tradition to put a better spin on it, people are trying to signal their intentions are good. We were talking before about good faith and bad faith. And one of the things that social media, I think, can strip from us and is a very, it's stripping away, in a sense, our humanity at its worst is taking intention out of any argument that you have and not looking at what people's intentions are and what, yeah, whether they're acting in good faith or bad faith. And that's, I think, when people feel really strong sense of injustice about cancel culture because intention is such a strong part of justice, like you know, even in the criminal justice system, mens rea is like the state of mind of someone who, when they commit an act, is considered very important. And so when you do something on social media and you're construed wrong, um, because people aren't thinking about your intentions or wondering about your intentions or caring, then we can feel very wronged. It's a
2: tricky territory, isn't it? Because there are areas where good intention is not a defence and there are areas often around... Identity and often around ignorance where uh, yeah. someone might have no particular, you know, you shouldn't ascribe racist intent or whatever, but it is very possible for unexamined privilege or unexamined um, prejudice uh, to, to have an impact on an audience. And so the policing of that kind of thing isn't always performed. You know, Oz, do you think there is a tension there between yeah. the genuine need to sometimes say your intent doesn't matter, your outcome matters, mm.
0: versus the question of good faith? This is one that I have been on a journey with for the past few years. I think Jackie said something about you know, the, the, the way that social media is so kind of individualised and narcissistic, and I think that's a huge part of this. And I think when you're trying to cancel someone, right? Or like, like, let's be more specific. If someone tweets something you think is bad, you think it's racist or misogynistic or transphobic, what you're trying to do Is you're trying to say this is not the society i want to be a part of i don't want to live in a culture where it's okay to be racist or to uh, attack marginalized people now taking down someone for what they posted on twitter or getting their film removed from the film festival doesn't make society a better place but in the absence of like really organized and exciting and radical and strong civil movements that have historically driven social progress forward. For a lot of people, it's kind of all they have. And I think for a generation, and I think millennials and then the people below us, Gen Z, it's kind of just a desperate attempt to do something. No one really knows what to do. Everyone feels a bit scared about the rise of the far right in Australia and around the world. They don't like it when people who perhaps accidentally stray into these areas, and that goes to that question of intent, and they struggle with how to create a fairer and more just world from the perspective that they see it. But what they do feel comfortable and familiar with is social media. They understand that you can like pile on people. They understand that you can attack and criticize people for dumb shit that they said. And so it almost becomes a proxy for what they think is social progress. I have these conversations with people that they think they've won because they made someone delete a tweet or they got something removed from a festival. For me, it's more about like, what is a win and where do you put your time and energy? And I'm, I'm saying I've been on a journey with this because you know I used to have a job where I would write a lot about these things. I would write articles about terribly named Indian restaurants that white people ran and called them, you know, like the great British empire or whatever. I think that stuff sucks. It's terrible, but we're not really, fighting the issues that make us so worked up about them, like the history of colonialism and you know, ongoing structural racism in Australia by getting really angry on Twitter. And and we might be making ourselves feel good. We might be getting heaps of likes and retweets. But is that almost a distraction from some of the real issues? And I, I am just being honest because I don't totally know... Like, I'm not mad at people if they want to get worked up, particularly if... Marginalised folk want to get really angry at something terrible someone tweets, that's totally their prerogative. But I feel like a lot of people in my generation and those younger have put all their eggs in that basket rather than thinking about how else we can change society. And I don't think we've got an answer for the latter, which is why we spend a lot of time on Twitter and Instagram talking about these things.
3: I mean, isn't that just a bit thoughtless and lazy though? You know, just to tweet something instead of, you know, it's a sort of about, it's like the pulling down of statues thing. It's just Hmm. kind of, it has, in my opinion, Jack, you probably have a different opinion, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's censoring and censorship, ultimately, I would say this as a journalist, but has a crueling and dulling and stupefying effect on any society. And there are ways to integrate the negative aspects of our, of our history, for example, that might be represented by some statues of white men that we have around the place. There are ways of integrating that history in a modern way, in a contemporary way, and bringing people along with you without tearing down that statue, I would say. But then I'm not a person who's personally offended by statues of Captain Cook, so.
4: Yeah, I have no issue with people cancelling the policy, or cancelling the work, but because, and I think you're absolutely right, we're in the peak narcissistic stage. Uh, Everyone, their social media is a mirror on themselves, and a mirror of the very small microcosm of, you know, that echo chamber that they're, they're, they're uh, existing in. Um, and it's just simple, they'll go the person mm. more often than the work or the policy or whatever. Statute, like history for me, that's, that's all textual. That's very text. Yep. Um, I've got no issue with people cancelling, say, Lachlan Macquarie. You know, yeah. that's, that's about a bigger thing. But when it comes down to actual humans that are still in that community, that they will cancel the individual, Mm. and it it is bullying. Mm. For me, cancel culture uh, doesn't exist away from social media, they're synonymous. Um, So it's it's when that real drive comes into uh, taking down a person. And as I said, I live in a niche channel. And when you start to question someone's else, someone else's identity to elevate your own clout, to game the platform that you're existing on, that's when it tips over for me and becomes really toxic. But, you know, cancel the policy, cancel the work. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's, as journalists, that's what we're here for. You know, we. Um, have a great platform in terms of we all work for a newspaper, it goes out there, you can't, you don't have that authority over the interpretation Mm. or the perspective that people have on it, Um, but as long as it's at the work, I've got no issue.
1: On Best of the Festivals on Radio National Summer, we're listening to a session called Woke in Fright from the Sydney Writers' Festival. On stage with Festival Director Michael Williams are Jacqueline Maley and Osman Faruqi from the Sydney Morning Herald and Age and Jack Lattimore, the Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Age.
0: I'm going to ask Jackie, because you mentioned your kind of concerns with where censorship ends up, surely you think there are some things that shouldn't be in newspapers? Or do in, in newspapers? Yeah, as an example.
3: Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I'm basically okay with the law as it is now. Like, I think hate speech obviously has no place in society, mm. definitely no place in a newspaper. But beyond that, I am actually pretty relaxed. I get very angry sometimes about things that I read Don't or sometimes things that I see on television, but I'm also aware that I'm a person with free will who doesn't mm. have to read that thing or can turn the television yeah. off. So I, I think generally. Um, If you're scared or worried or threatened by something that someone's saying, then, I don't know, I think you just need to be a bit stoic about it. I
2: am going to follow up on that. You know, we have a panel of three esteemed journalists with us, but uh, I think if this period shows us anything, it's a certain potential for a glass jaw on the part of journalistic classes when it oh, comes yeah. to getting critiques from people who, I can't you believe know. you would say that. I know, oh, I know, I'm so sorry. It's, oh dear. Yeah, I, don't, I don't understand that. Like, it, it, it just, it really does fascinate me uh, the extent to which I think one of the things the rise of social media has done is uh, have citizen journalists, have, no, I'm not gonna use that phrase, have readers hmm. come back and talk about the stuff that they do or don't feel comfortable oh yeah, with it, really that's do. fair game, that's not, this has a, you know, now none of that is cancelling or silencing, it's critiquing, and yet the response is uh, that the social media mob is coming after us.
3: You know? Yeah, well, j- journalists don't like it. I mean, you know, we've got, we've got egos, we've got feelings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you cut us, do we not bleed? <laughs> um, yeah, it is a strange feeling to have your job and your work like sort of criticised and critiqued by um, a peanut gallery in real time. But I can understand that people do it and I don't, it doesn't really bother me.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's funny, most workplaces I've been in, I've been part of the social media mob criticising journalists. You will, you'll very <laughs> rarely hear me defending, uh, you know, Australian political journalism in particular, but a lot of places I work, I meet my colleagues, and they're like, I remember you. You, like, got really mad at me on Twitter once. Um, and I think you're right, there is that glass jaw, and I think it comes from a fear of cancellation, whatever that means. No, like, journalists talk about this a lot. They don't want to... They say they're too scared to write a certain thing because they don't want Twitter to come after them. And I think that's debilitating, I think it's a bit of a cop-out as well, because as a journalist you have, Jack said, you've got this authority and privilege to speak to potentially millions of people, and if occasionally people don't like that, you kind of have to suck it up.
3: You do, but, I, but, I, but this is where, and this is, I keep sounding like a sort of a law graduate, but like there's <laughs> a, this, this sort of, you take people as they come, like there's a principle in negligence law, like, you know, some people are more vulnerable to those Mm. critiques and other people. And this is one of the problems that I have with cancel culture, is that people often think that they're going after the powerful, but actually I think some of the silent victims of cancel culture are marginalised people, women, female journalists, I would say, and young creative people who live on the margins and maybe don't have a lot of access to a lot of cultural capital. And that's when cancel culture really pisses me off. It's that's not a really good point, It's, it's, it's not yeah. when Andrew Bolt or whoever, you know, who's powerful, or, or some journalist, even a journalist like me, gets cancelled. It's when, I don't know, there's probably a lot of victims of cancel culture that we don't see because they don't make their plays or they don't, you know, they don't paint their paintings and all that kind of stuff. And also, I just look at all the female journalists, like not to defend journalists too much, but all the female journalists who are withdrawing from Twitter...
0: Yeah, it's not an even playing field and no. you're, uh, just the amount of like women in particular that get targeted for writing stories that people on Twitter don't like, who get extremely anxious and stressed and depressed by it...
3: Well, it's very sexualized Absolutely. You know, yeah. and very misogynistic, a lot of the... Exactly, the and tourism. I think
0: it goes back to this point of like, people are mad about something, they don't know what to do about it, the one channel they've got is Twitter. And so that's where all that kind of rage gets directed and it might drive quite well-meaning journalists off Twitter. It's not changing anything structurally in terms of where power lies in this country.
3: Yeah.
4: And it's very... It is a microcosm as well. Yeah. There's a lot... uh, Cancer culture is very noisy, and as you said, it's just not very effective. Rage, rage, rage. Um, But once a journalist takes their account offline or mutes or whatever, it completely disappears. I think we do have a glass jaw, a lot, and um, you know I'm I'm all for it. I'm just not going to participate in it. You yeah, know? yeah. Mm. If if that's the pond that you want to kick and stir up, go for it. Mm. Um, I think that the toxicity of it is
2: is unmistakable. But I'm I'm also just curious about. And we often hear this, you know, the mob, the pile on, the idea that the strength of this. Frankly, rabble <laughs> uh, for the most part, made up of individuals with different motivations and different whatever. But that that's where the power base lies, rather than elsewhere. Suddenly, victimhood is turned on its head because there's the idea that there's this boogeyman that is censoriousness from uh, from social media. Do you think it's overstated how much that aggressive response matters, or do you think who's to your driving point, Jackie, the
4: response? Like. Yes there's some humans behind it, but how many bots and how many algorithms are driving the response like there's a whole technological factor into a pylon or a cancel culture that's that,
3: very true yeah. you know yeah. yeah
4: needs to be part of what we're talking about as well yeah and yeah. and and also, if there is you know ten to twelve people that are really noisy and spending twelve hours just posting 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 that is influencing those technological algorithms, bots and that sort of stuff. So it becomes amplified and distorted really quickly. And, you know, look at TikTok for some of the uh, algorithms that are just, like, mind-blowingly good, bad. But, you know, they pick up and soon you're in that chamber, you know.
1: On Best of the Festivals on Radio National Summer, we're listening to a session called Woke in Fright from the Sydney Writers' Festival. On stage with festival director Michael Williams are Jacqueline Maley and Osman Faruqi from the Sydney Morning Herald and Age and Jack Lattimore, the Indigenous Affairs editor at The Age. Now, time to hear some questions from the audience.
4: Do you think cancel culture stops people who say or do things that are detrimental to others from taking true accountability by victimising themselves? And
1: how should we approach that issue?
3: I, I think it probably does, and that's one of, one of the reasons why it kind of annoys me, <laughs> because um, it gives, you know, it's, it, the, the backlash to it um, can be very counterproductive for the original cause, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, like people think they've won. This was the point I was making before, I think. It's like people think they've won because that person was... Cancelled in this context, yeah. whether that's like they deleted a tweet or they issued a 10 tweet apology or they were taken off a festival lineup, has that resolved any of the substantive problems that we're actually worried about? I'm not convinced.
5: While you were talking, I was wondering about the whole context of uh, social media and cancel culture at a time when there's very low union membership and very low um, political party membership and the rise of economic rationalism, where we have governments who don't really address some of the issues that we care most passionately about. And I wonder what you'd say about that context of how this whole movement's arrived.
0: Yeah, I think I probably didn't explain it very well earlier, but that was one of the points I was trying to make, because I think the rise of what we've been talking about is sort of narcissistic social media driven cancel culture is I think a corollary to the decline of all of those things. Mm. I think yeah. How did social progress used to happen in western democracies? Big movements like the union movement worked with big political parties and pushed for change, whether that was the rights of Aboriginal people or the rights of women. All of that stuff is kind of broken and f- fallen apart and no one really knows how to do that anymore but they still really want to and they're really mad about it, which they should be. So we tweet about it, I think. That maybe sounds reductive, but I do think that there is a structural factor behind all of this stuff.
3: I think that's true too. And I mean, unions, community groups, um, yeah, the vehicles of grassroots activism that used to be more popular, They involved real communities and real people and real relationships, and none of those things really exist in the (laughs) same way on social media. They do a bit, but. Strong ties. Yeah, yeah, strong ties to human beings. It's about relationships, essentially.
0: And unions had fights about these kinds of things, you know, like political parties. It wasn't like these debates around, you know, should queer people have rights and should women. They're not new debates. There was forums and mechanisms through which they they had them. And now we don't have that
4: anymore, anyway. And also, if you weren't personal in a union room, you'd probably get, you know, cleaned up (laughs) afterwards.
3: Well, and yeah, yeah, you would... It was about the
4: policy, it wasn't about taking down someone who lived three or four doors up from you, you know?
3: Yeah. So it was a different sort of accountability, I suppose. Were you constrained by social convention, which can be a very useful thing?
5: Aside from all the uh, dissection of what it means about cancel culture, what are your thoughts about a kind of world movement that in a way highlights that what we're still doing is form of attack on one another rather than what you said, Jack, which was sit down and listen. Where is the listening and is there a you know, if, if I have a conversation at a, a table with a group of people, sometimes you just get attacked rather yeah, than, that's an interesting question. Let's, let's look at that. And social media doesn't allow you to listen in a no, way. No,
4: social media is about that way, yeah. I feel. It's very, and this is uh, the dissent that I was talking about of Twitter over the last five or seven years or whatever. Um, it's very much, I'm just going to keep talking. And then you'll talk, and then I'll talk again. There's no exchange happening anymore. Um, And I think, I don't know, I I kind of ascribe that to, like, information abundance. And I think we're kind of being fostered or shepherded or whatever towards synthesising noise instead of sitting down and just shutting up and listening to it. That's so
3: true. That's so true. Yeah, wise wise words.
0: I get that, I mean, agree with what Jack said, but I think sometimes the idea of sitting around and talking, I love talking, but I think for a lot of people, when we're talking about these sorts of issues, what we don't want to do is talk with people who question our right to exist or express our rights. You know, like I don't really want to sit around a table with Pauline Hanson or the far right, and, and as they're debating whether or not Muslims should be allowed into Australia. And I think 50 years ago, Asking, you know, Aboriginal people to sit around the table and talk to people who say they don't have the right to marry white people, for example, and it sounds like tempting. Let's just sit sit around and figure it all out. But that's like a really terrible experience. I, to put people I,
3: I would I would definitely agree with that. I am not a person of colour, obviously, but I feel as a woman, I often feel that way because mm. you know, when you're sitting sitting down with men who you know, you know, are misogynist, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. But the structure of progressive movements is that they always have to deal yeah, with the other side. Yeah. They always have to sit down with, and you know, if they wanna get stuff done, they have to deal with them. So I sort of think you have to do it somehow. It's the just a matter f- of yeah, how point. you go about engaging with it.
5: Yeah. I guess uh, just to be clear before I step down, um, I didn't necessarily mean sitting around and just talking. What I meant was that a whole culture of listening on an international level almost needs to be encouraged from a school level to prosecute debate in a way that's not just for the intellectual but is for people who ha- may not feel they have a voice. And how how oh, do yeah. you, you know, you get that across and what is the respect of listening, that understanding I, I think you do that
3: through community. I think you do it offline. I think you do it, like, you know dealing with your neighbours and your PNC group and the yeah. school parents at your school. And, you know, those are the relationships where um, that sort of sense of community is built and where understanding is fostered across different types of people, I think.
5: Yeah. yeah.
4: One interesting thing that I've observed within, uh, like the, say, I'm just going to describe it as, you know, black politics, uh, black social media, everyone was saying, you know, this whole voicing, not the voice, but amplifying voice, why don't you listen to us? Why does no one listen to us when we speak? Um, and it was, it was probably earlier than that, it was around Tony Abbott when he was PM. And suddenly everyone started going on listening tours. Mm. Mm. It was like, we're going off there to have a listening tour. And I was like, what the, <laughs> is that, you know? And they'd have their safari suit on or whatever. <laughs> Just Thank for a throw over. <laughs>
2: It does, I mean, it does remind me of after Trump was elected, so much of the commentary, that kind of self-criticism of the left in the States, and the New York Times did a lot of this, is, oh, we failed to empathise with the position of people across kind of middle America. You know, we failed to recognise the hurt that they were having. And it, it was hard not to feel that it was a, a call for empathy for people who are failing to feel empathy in the other direction. Mm. You know, like, it's a strange... Yeah, I,
3: don't, I don't agree with that, Michael. I don't agree with that at all. I think that was real, and I think that um, you know, there is a sort of huge white underclass um, in America that does feel very aggrieved, and I don't think you can write off a huge population in that I... sense as having no, in no reason for their aggrievement. But I also think that that is a result of enormous Im- economic inequality yeah, that has yeah. been building um, and worsening in America for a long time and race and feelings around race almost kind of like a stalking horse for the underlying problem. It
4: that was I, a real I, thing though, yeah. it was genuinely a real thing. Guardian had a whole project on it, there was books and stuff that came out. Yeah. But then after that, who got the microphone? Yeah. And yep, that's sure. where it became yeah, privileged again.
2: Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I'm not suggesting there's not something of substance there, but it's, you know, the Harper's letter came out a month after George Floyd's death when, you know, the, you know it, it's hard to disconnect these ideas about who has a voice. And in the public sphere, increasingly historically marginalised voices are getting, you know, are getting heard. And so the power balance is shifting somewhat. And I I do think that there is an anxiety about that. I don't think the power balance is shifting.
4: I think more voices are being heard. Yeah. But I think that's threatening to people who... Oh yeah, yeah. it's threatening when someone speaks when they're not supposed to speak Mm. for a moment, but there's no power shift.
3: So far this debate has has largely been framed about the right cancelling the left or vice versa. Um, But often cancellation happens within sides as well. And mm. I wonder um, if the panel could comment on the effect that that has
5: within a movement to be mm. able to sort of build support from perhaps slightly differently minded but well-meaning supporters of a
3: movement.
0: It's mm. a really good question and a really good point. And in fact, I think it probably happens more in those spaces like intra and I mean, the left the left loves eating itself, like, yes. that's like the history since day one. I've been thinking a lot about why that is. Like, why do I see so many smart, sharp people I know who I think if they, if they directed their energy towards certain targets on the other side would be so effective and powerful. And I see them aim for the low-hanging fruit, which is someone who they think should be on their side and then says one dumb thing, and I think it is... I don't know the answer, but my my best feeling about it is that it's you're just desperate for a win of some kind. Like the left is not really winning in a lot of things. <laughs> like climate policy is ten years behind where it should be. Uh, racial justice is is not inching forward; it's inching backwards in so many ways. There's there's so many problems going on. So people are desperate for a win, and a win can be you're on my side, but you said one thing wrong in on this one issue. I'm now going like, to tear you apart. And then that person apologises, you feel good, they maybe changed their mind, or maybe they didn't change their mind, they just were sick of being targeted and attacked. And I do think that is a, a waste of energy and time.
4: I'm interested in the economy hmm. and the capital of taking someone down. Hmm. Do you see that as a thing?
0: I, I think that is also... There is a sense of limited opportunities for certain people, and if there's only so many book deals and festival slots and TV writing gigs and writing rooms to go around and there is a big sense from institutions that they want to be seen to be woke, you can take out people by saying they're not black enough, they're not brown enough, they're yeah. not, you know... They're not the right sort of black. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 totally. That's a really good point. I think that is a factor.
4: I think there's a thing within the circles of the world that I move through, I think it extends beyond that as well, but clout. This is new to me, relatively new, and it's the economy of clout. Mm. And people will game social media knowing that if they are able to take down um, people with a certain amount of clout and garner an additional amount of clout in doing so for themselves and gain some followers, then there is a financial capital at the end of that, Mm. whether it's a book deal, uh, publicity appearing on the drum, other things like that so there's there's a real sport or gaming element to it as well when i was uh, within i was after i was with indigenous x and um we kind of viewed it i was talking with luke pearson and he said um you know when we started indigenous x it was very much like the 60s it was free love and you know everyone was (laughs) in the right intentions and all this sort of stuff uh and now we're in the reagan era <laughs> where everyone sees an opportunity to acquire capital. Wow. And it's really nasty place to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's I think that is very it's, much
3: self interest into the mix now. Yeah, yeah,
4: it's very, you know, it's, it's commodified. Yeah. And yeah. before it was about exchange and, yeah. you know, you know connections. Yeah, well,
3: maybe, maybe that's where the dividing line is. I mean, I, within feminism, there's been, you know, all ma- almighty stashes and, you know, strong movements and backlashes within the movement for, you know, for decades. Um, and, I mean, looking at a historical perspective, I think it's beautiful and interesting and fascinating when you look at the, the evolution of feminism and all the fights we've had within the movement for as long as it's existed. And I guess one of, the, one of the fights that's happening now is the sort of trans, you know, the turf versus non turf kind of wars, um, which, again, I think is a very interesting and beautiful evolution because younger feminists have a different idea about what feminism should be and the inclusivity of feminism. But I won't say that it's not dismaying sometimes to see people who should broadly be helping each other out, actually attacking each other. Um, It can be very upsetting to watch. I'm really glad, Jackie, that
2: you brought it to feminism pretty much to finish off the session because I think more than any other social justice movement, feminism's a movement that talks about itself in terms of waves and in terms of kind of generational progression. Beautiful,
3: evolving, kind of constantly alive, you know, and changing beast. And I I love that about the movement, you know. It's like a woman, you know, (laughs) constantly in evolution. (laughs) I do think generational
2: shifts and generational changes are at the heart of some of this stuff as well, as as mores change, as kind of understanding is rendered more complex, perhaps. I'm hoping that we go out into the day feeling a little more optimistic about the chance for smart, meaningful discourse in the time ahead. I'd ask you to join me in thanking our wonderful panel, Osman Faruqi, Jacqueline Maley, Jack Latimer.
1: We've been listening to a session called Woke in Fright from the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival. On stage with festival director Michael Williams were Jacqueline Maley and Osman Faruqi from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and Jack Latimore, Indigenous Affairs journalist at The Age.